there were 70 years that the Jews suffered as slaves once again in captivity of Babylon. God predicted it would happen. God said, if you leave the covenant that I gave you, if you disobey it and you turn to idols, you will be taken captive in a foreign country, not your own, which happened. Part of the reason that the captivity was 70 years is that Israel failed to keep its sabbatic year. The pattern that God set for them in farming was you'll plant for six years, you will let the ground lay fallow for one year, letting whatever grows grow of itself. You won't harvest it. You will kick back and take a year's vacation. I could get into that. But as the time wore on, people thought, hey, why let the thing sit out there for a year? We can make money. Let's harvest it. But they were to let it lie follow also, not just to give the land a rest, but to care for the poor of the land, that they could come in freely and take all that they wanted any time all year long and save up. The children of Israel for 490 years failed to keep the sabbatic years. 490 years is 70 sabbatic years or years of rest that they failed to obey God. So they owed God 70 years of rest. God accomplished that by removing them from their borders, taking them to Babylon for exactly 70 years captivity. Now they returned, some 42,000 of them. That sounds like a large group, but it was a remnant in comparison to the people that stayed back into Babylon. So they come back enthusiastic to rebuild the land that was their forefathers. And they were hard at the task. As I said, very enthusiastic. They put up temporary shelters as they were rebuilding the temple. But pretty soon, oppression set in, discouragement set in, and opposition. And for 16 years, they let the temple do nothing, just lay in ruins. They were content to follow their own schemes, build up their own kingdom, make their own nice homes, and forget about the work of the Lord. They thought, you know, the work of God can wait. I'm busy building my family, my life. During that time, God gave them a shot in the arm, two shots in the arm. One was Haggai, and one was Zechariah. And their message brought a breath of fresh air to the land and people again took to task rebuilding the temple. Now, the temple was finally completed in, I believe, 516 B.C., 70 years after it was destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you would think that after the rebuilding of the temple, the realization of their dreams that they would enter into sort of a golden age, they did not. Oppression occurred in the Persian Empire and in the land of Israel. It was during this time that a strategic person who was in the Persian Empire was used by God to deliver the Jews. Her name? Esther. This is the time in which Esther occurs and was written. When Haman and his wicked plotting against the Jews to destroy them was discovered by Mordecai, and he goes over to Esther and says, Who knows that God did not bring you to the kingdom for such a time as this, to deliver the Jews? But know this. If you fail to deliver the Jews, deliverance will rise from another quarter. 
But who knows, maybe this is the whole reason you were born and put into the kingdom. Back in the land of Israel, we get to the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi. Indifference had now set in. People were saying, what's the use of serving God? Who cares? Apathy, indifference, just kind of letting things go their own way while they went their own way. And so God sends Malachi. Now, we've already discovered the retorts that Israel had against God every time he asked a question or every time he brought a matter to them. They asked some kind of sarcastic, cute little question. And... um, We might want to go back to chapter 2. And just read the first couple verses to get the setting. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you if you will not hear. If you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, that I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. And... um, (coughs) Back in um, chapter 1, God in verse 2 says, I've loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And then God goes on throughout the rest of the chapter. And uh, verse 12, but you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. Yet you say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it. The people were indifferent. The priests were corrupt. Though they were Levites, they were not practicing the same heartfelt worship as their father Levi had practiced before the Lord. And so God says in verse 7 of chapter 2, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. Because the priesthood was indifferent, lazy ministers just wanting to hang around and look at the temple in the morning, say, praise the Lord, turn over, go to sleep. The people became indifferent. They started doing something that God forbade, which was marrying foreign women. They come back from captivity, and while they were back, they noticed that there's all these beautiful pagan girls all around them in Jerusalem. And so they started dumping their wives. Thinking, you know, I've got this old hag... All she does is badger me all day long. That beautiful young girl out there has eyes for me. And so they were leaving their wives, marrying pagan wives, and some of them were even in the priesthood. Now, the book of Nehemiah tells us that Nehemiah got so upset at this that he actually yelled at people, grabbed them and shook them, and pulled their hair. Because he knew the corruption that was coming upon the people and could eventually destroy the nation once again. But, though they were indifferent, they loved to argue. Every time God said, I have something against you, what do you have against us? Well, you're doing this. What do you mean we're doing this? And you're doing that. What do you mean we're doing that? They all had some argument against God. Now, there are things I don't understand when God does them. I'm puzzled. In fact, I express my puzzlement to the Lord. Lord, I don't know why you allowed that. But I'm careful not to argue with the Lord. I've done it a few times. I've gotten my foot caught in my mouth a few times, but I'm careful not to do that anymore. To argue with the Lord. 
in a belligerent kind of a way. You know, there are some people that just love to argue. No matter what position you take, they want to argue the point. And listen, though I don't mind contending earnestly for the faith, I don't like to enter into arguments. And sometimes you can see people come and they've got that look in their eye as they walk up after service. They have an argument. They, they want to pick a fight. They'll say, well, you know, my position... Blah, blah, blah. Great. What do you mean great? What do you think? I think that's your position. <laughs> we think I'm a heretic. No, you're not a heretic. You're just inaccurate. But <laughs> I don't want to argue the point. <clears throat> Probably every week I get something handed to me at every service. It could be an article, and I appreciate articles. Every now and then it'll be some 15 to 20 page letter. And I, I got to be honest with you, I don't read most of them. I would spend most of my time reading letters if I did. Well, listen, this is my position. Read it. Pray about it. <laughs> All right. If I get time, I'll, I'll read it. I'll certainly pray about it. Now, these people, no matter what God would say, had some kind of a disagreement and an argument, and God was showing them that it was that hardness of heart that was leading them down that path. In verse 11 of chapter 2, the last part of it, Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. And then in verse 14, Yet you say, for what reason? Well, let's get back to verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. You say, for what reason? Why won't you accept it, Lord? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of his spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Now, I want you to keep something in mind, folks. It does not say he hates divorced people. He hates the sin of divorce. And you have to be careful in your attitude toward those who are divorced. The divorce God hates. Jesus said, What God has joined together, let not man separate. Though it is a sin, that's exactly why it is forgivable. Because it is sin. God does not hate divorced people. God is a divorced person. Did you know that? God himself said that. I have given Israel a bill of divorcement. God said. She was my wife. I put her away from me because of her unfaithfulness, her spiritual adultery. God didn't want to do it, but he did it, though he brought them back in reconciliation. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. As most of you know, in ancient Israel... They did not date. 
Marriages were basically prearranged. You were a little child. Your parents were always looking for the right one. <coughs> and uh, they found the right one. They would strike a deal with her parents. You, you were left out of it, man. It wasn't your choice. It was their choice. After all, you're a kid. You can't make these kind of lifelong decisions. Somebody who's experienced ought to make these choices. What do kids know about marriage? So they would discuss the dowry, the terms of uh, support and so forth. They'd sit down over a cup of coffee and the dads would strike a deal. At that point you were spoken for and you knew from an early age that that girl was going to be your wife. Of course, you'd pray as you would grow up. And she would pray, by the way, as well. A year before the marriage, you would enter into what is called the time of espousal, a one-year period where you would court one another. You were officially bound. You could only separate by a legal divorce. You could have no sexual relations. It was just a time of courting, getting to know one another, preparing for your life together. However, if you said, you know what, I'm going to dump you, you had to write a bill of divorce. Now, there was a passage in the book of Deuteronomy that people had trouble with back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. The first few verses, speaking of divorce. I just want to touch on this tonight. I don't want to get too in-depth because... You could go on and on and on and then never finished the Bible. So um, we've touched on it before, but let's look at Deuteronomy 24. <clears throat> when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance." The problem is that the interpretation of the word uncleanness in verse 1 stumbled people. What does uncleanness mean? And there were two basic schools of interpretation. There was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Shammai was strict. He said uncleanness refers to adultery. Hillel, on the other hand, was a Jewish rabbi who was very liberal, very broad-minded. He said uncleanness could refer to absolutely anything. If you found some defect in your wife, if she was talking to another man in public, he said, you could divorce her. If he cooked your meal and burnt your eggs, you could divorce her. If you found, some of the rabbis taking his interpretation said, if you found another woman more beautiful than your wife and she pleased you more, you could divorce your wife because you found uncleanness. Okay, now, which do you think most of the Jewish men gravitated toward in interpretation is obvious. It's exactly right. 
They gravitated toward Hillel because they thought, hey, we have an out. Now, she had no out, according to this interpretation. He had all of the the back doors available to him. She said, you know, you're a creep. I'm going to divorce you. Tough, you can't. But I don't like you. I'm divorcing you, giving me the freedom to go on, disgracing his wife. By the time of Jesus Christ, it was so rampant divorce. They were divorcing each other at the drop of a hat. In fact, the Pharisees said, Why did Moses command us to give our wives a bill of divorcement? Jesus said, He didn't command you. He allowed you to do it. It was not a requirement. In fact, the issue of the text is not divorce at all. The issue is the putting away. Well, it says, If he writes her a bill of divorcement, sends her out of the house... She's departed from his house and goes to be another man's wife. If the latter husband detests her and writes her a bill of divorcement, they're not the first two to get back together again. It's the forbidding to remarry in that context. The idea is that an unlawful division can create adultery because it says after she is defiled. What does defiled mean? She's obviously defiled because her first husband divorced her unlawfully causing her to commit adultery when she remarried with the other man. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, by the way, uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24 doesn't refer to adultery. Adultery was punished not by divorcement in the Old Testament times, but by stoning to death. So uncleanness means something short of it. The context is somebody let his wife go, divorced her, without the right reason. He just dumped her. He found some flaw, some impurity. Whatever that was, that is not the issue of the text. But it's causing her to be defiled by the divorce and that remarriage. Now, a great multitude comes together. And the Pharisees, chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 3 came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Who were they following? Halal. He answered them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is a divinely given institution. Man has not the right nor the competence to tamper with an institution given and regulated by God. Then he said, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? See, they misinterpreted the law. Moses never once gave them a command. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So he says, let's go back to the original blueprint. The original blueprint, it was not that way at all. They shall be joined and cleave together forever. And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. 
You can see how they were thinking that because the Jews had interpreted that to mean it's so wide you can do whatever you want to. Jesus said, no. You cannot divorce your wife unless she has committed an act of infidelity, adultery. Then you have a concession clause. And that's why Jesus said, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Divorce is a divine concession to human weakness. And there's only one clause, one cause for a biblical divorce, and that would be sexual immorality. Though even in that case, oftentimes we've seen reconciliation occur. Now there's more to this than that. Matthew chapter 5, of course. uh, 1 Corinthians 7, but we just don't have the time to get into it. But God says He hates divorce. People had broadened the view and were following Hillel, divorcing their wives for any reason. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. We finished that last week. But look at the last part of the verse, verse 17. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's what they were saying. And he delights in them. Or they were saying, where is the God of justice? Where is God? How come all the suffering around? As I look around the world today, I see suffering. Where is God? That's what they were saying. So God says, okay, let me answer that question. And he answers it in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. Where is God? He's coming. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In that verse, there are two messengers. There is a messenger who prepares the way. We know that refers to John the Baptist by reading the New Testament. Then there is, secondly, the messenger of the covenant. And notice how that phrase is structured. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. John the Baptist was called the greatest prophet and the greatest man who ever lived by Jesus Christ. He is technically the last Old Testament prophet, not Malachi. After Malachi, there's 400 silent years. God turns off the broadcasting network. He has nothing to say to man in terms of revelation. 400 years later, a man named Zacharias is serving his turn in the temple. And he's burning incense before the altar. As he's worshiping in the temple the angel Gabriel appears at the right-hand side of the altar and says, Hey, guess what, pal? Your wife is pregnant. She's going to have a son. Now, his wife Elizabeth was old, past childbearing years like Sarah. And the angel says that he will prepare the way for the Messiah. He quotes this scripture. He quotes the scripture out of Isaiah. And so 400 silent years come to an end when the messenger who prepares the way before the messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ, breaks out upon the scene. Uh, Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Let's take a Luke there. Luke 7. Thank you, Chet. John the Baptist sends his disciples to inquire if Jesus really is the Messiah or not. 
He tells them to go back. But in verse 24, when the messengers of John departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. For I say to you that among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's quite a compliment. No one ever born is greater than he. Now there's been lots of people who have come to this earth with great accomplishments, writings. John the Baptist is greater than Abraham, Plato, Socrates, greater than Einstein. And all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. John the Baptist came to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, as we'll see prophesied at the end of this chapter. But then in Malachi 3 it says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. There is some dispute as to whether this refers to the first or second coming of Jesus Christ. Both are applicable. Jesus did suddenly come to his temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He rebuked the priests for their false worship. But the Lord Jesus will suddenly come to his temple in the second coming. Ezekiel sees the Messiah coming with great glory and reigning. Zechariah sees him reigning from Mount Zion, from the Temple Mount. Same with Isaiah chapter 2. He will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Now this would seem to refer then to the second coming of Christ. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a savior. He principally came to deal with the sin issue. The second time Jesus comes, he will judge sin. He will come not as a savior, but as a judge. He will judge the world for its sin, for its rejection of the Messiah. He'll purge the earth through the tribulation period, saving a remnant of 144,000 Jews. But he will come as a judge. Who can endure it? It will be like a refiner's fire. Uh, A silversmith would take his silver or his metal and put it on a red hot flame. It would melt. And as it would melt, the dross would come to the surface. He would scrape it off. And that's how metal was purified. God will purify the earth in his judgment. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. As in the days of old... As in the former years, and I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, 
against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows of the fatherless, against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Sorcery was going on in Israel after they returned from captivity. Now think about that for a minute. God spanked them for 70 years because they were worshiping idols. They were worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth upon the high places of Israel. They came back fervent to serve the Lord. You'd think, okay, listen, after all that you guys have been through, you're going to be good, right? No, they were for a while. The captivity cured their idolatry only temporarily. Then once again, they started back into idol worship. How? Because the men worshipped foreign women, meaning idolatrous pagan-worshipping women. And so they'd marry them, and she would say, You know, honey, um, we have a good relationship, and I really love you, and I know you love me, but listen, I have this little household idol. Oftentimes they would carry him in their luggage. And they would bring it out, and she'd say, I hope this doesn't offend you, but I know you worship your God, but as you know, I have to worship my God. Pretty soon the men were being led astray into idolatry themselves because of the women they married. Which, by the way, is the reason in 2 Corinthians 6, the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. That is, don't be mismated, one version says. Don't be mismatched. An unequal yoke, as we said last week, is when you would take two oxen of different sizes, different temperaments, You'd yoke them with that wooden device that would go around their neck to pull the plow. And because they were of different temperaments, different sizes, one a little more rambunctious than the other, they would start plowing the field and they would want to go in two different directions. Or one would want to go faster, the other would want to lag behind. And you'd never get the work done. In our relationships, as Christians, when it comes to a lifelong partnership of marriage, God knows that you will never be happy being pulled in two directions. And because God loves you and He wants you to be fulfilled in your relationship, He says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, for some reason, there are Christians who think that God's being harsh. Why would God not allow me to marry anybody I want to? I mean, these believers, you know, who some of these guys, they never asked me out. Or Christian guys might say, oh, these gals at the church, you know, there's nothing I want to date. Or they, they, they you know, they're out. They don't want to go out with me. I've asked them. So I'll marry this gal. The worst thing you could do. Ask people who have failed to listen to the counsel of Scripture, who have decided to get married to an unbeliever and give it several years. Ask them. Counsel with them. Ask them if it was the right move. I challenge you. I've met so many who have said, listen, I know what the Bible says, but this is different. He's wonderful. He's Prince Charming. He even has a white horse he gallops up on. He can do no wrong. Only to find that it was God's love that was trying to withhold them from that person. It was God's restraining love when He said, don't be mismatched or mismated with an unbeliever. You'll never be happy being pu- you'll be pulled in two different directions. You'll never be able to serve me with all of your heart like you'd like to together. 
In this case, it was the worst case. Sorcery had come in against adulterers, perjurers, or those who, who lie, and so forth. Verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. One of the attributes of God is His immutability. He does not change. He didn't change His mind. The Lord is not a man or the Son of Man, that he should repent. There are those who say, well, there's a different God in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is this harsh judge. The God of the New Testament is this gracious, warm... They're both the same. In fact, God says here, I don't change, therefore you're not consumed. I'm gracious to you. Because of my character, you're not wiped out. If I were, you know, this flip-flop God, like you say, man, you'd be toast. You're not consumed because I don't change. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? These guys are starting to make me mad now, actually. Now, God says, return to me. They say, what do you mean, return? We've never left you. Here we are, worshiping in the temple, going through the rituals. We go to church. We're here. We didn't leave. We didn't go anywhere. Why are you telling us to return? But they were going through the ritual, through the emotion, through the pageantry, but they had no power. Through the ritual, but had no relationship. God says, return to me. And they say, in what way shall we return? There's a scripture in the New Testament, in the um, first part of Revelation, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches throughout Asia Minor. The first one is the church of Ephesus. Mind you, the church of Ephesus had a good report card. Jesus said, I have certain things that I look at you and I commend you for. You're hardworking. You keep out false teachers. You work hard together for one another. They had a list of good things. They were a hard-working, doctrinally pure church. And yet Jesus said, I have this thing against you. You've left your first love. You're going through the religious pageantry. You're being right. You're so right, you're dead right. You've left your first love. That love of espousal. You remember when you first met Jesus Christ, you gave your heart to Him? You didn't know much. But you loved him so much. You went to sleep the first few nights saying, This is great. I've given my heart to Jesus. He's so wonderful. Jesus said, You're going through all of the motions. You're working hard at church. But you've left your first love. Return, Jesus said. Return. Recognize from where you are fallen. Repent and do your first works. And really that's the idea of return to me. It's the word repent. The the fullest sense of the definition is the New Testament term, the Greek word metanoia, which means repent, to turn around. You're going down the path. You recognize I'm not going the right direction. You turn, do an about face, and go the right way. Return to me. Go the right way. Repent. By the way, we think of repentance for unbelievers. Do you know that mostly in the New Testament it's spoken toward Christians, toward believers? More often than not, it's used for believers to repent. We think, well, they they need to repent. They're heathen. We need to repent. 
to the seven letters Jesus wrote to the seven churches. There was only one church he didn't tell them to repent. That was the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. They were suffering because they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire under ten sieges. To every one of them, even the church of Philadelphia, of brotherly love, he told them to repent over an issue. That is why the Word of God is a sharp two-edged sword, and every time we're exposed to it, and God shows us an area of our life, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to wrath. Be slow to nudge your mate or the person next to you. Be quick to allow the Spirit of God to point the finger at your own heart. Return to me. And yet they're saying, what do you mean return to you? Where, how should we return? There's nothing wrong with me. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even the whole nation. As you know, we don't make a big deal out of tithes and offerings. We don't have parking lot Sunday or offering Sunday and uh, stewardship week. We teach through the Scripture. And when the Scripture speaks about finances, then we deal with them. When it doesn't, we don't. We make it available as an act of worship. And that's what giving should be. It's part of worship. We have agape boxes around the auditorium. We tell people, the agape boxes are there for your tithes and your offerings. As before the Lord, you want to do that. Now, some people make a strict law out of giving. Almost wanting to get us back to the Old Testament tithe, most of them misunderstanding what the tithe is all about. Now, first of all, let's just look at the tithe. 10% of all that you make goes to the Lord. That's the idea of the tithe, generally. Now, some people wince at that. 10%? God, you're being stiff. No, God's being gracious. He's letting you keep nine-tenths of what He owns. It's His anyway. It's not yours. Oh, I worked for it. He gave you legs, arms, and a brain. He gave you talents and gifts. You know, I went to college. He gave you the resources to do it. Everything is owned by God. He's let you keep nine-tenths of it. God says, you bring the tenth to me. Actually, however, it was more than 10%. It was, oh, I give my 10%. And every Christian ought to give 10%. Actually, you find that the New Testament, the tithe, is really not the issue. Charles Feinberg, for whom we are indebted for his Jewish scholarship, lists several of the tithes in Israel. He says, the offering in Israel were the first fruits not less than one-sixteenth of the corn, the wine, and the oil. There were also several kinds of tithes. Number one, tenth of the remainder after the first fruits were taken. This amount going to the Levites for their livelihood, Leviticus 27. Number two, the tenth paid by the Levites to the priests, Numbers 18. Three, the second tenth paid by the congregation for the needs of the Levites, and their own families at the tabernacle, Deuteronomy 12. And four, another tithe every third year for the poor. All in all, it was about 30%. Say, now God's really getting stiff. No, again, 
He let them keep 70%. He gave them the land. He blessed them. They were robbing God. How are we robbing you? He says in tithes and offerings. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. In the New Testament, there is a different um, approach to giving. The tithe is Old Testament. In many cases, people gave more than the tithe. Paul commended the Macedonians because they gave beyond their ability to give financially. Even when they couldn't do it, they did it anyway, beyond their own ability. Now, Paul sort of lays down the idea of giving financially when he says that we should not give by constraint. We should give hilariously. God loves a cheerful giver. Again, the Greek word is hilarious giver. Old Testament would be, here's 10% God, no less, but no more. Or 20 or whatever. The New Testament concept is, as you purpose in your heart before the Lord, whatever amount it is, you do it hilariously. All right, what an opportunity to spread the gospel of the kingdom of God. When is the last time you gave like that? Hilariously. God loves a cheerful giver. What if at Christmas time, somebody you love gave you a gift? How do you expect them to give it to you? Hilariously. Hey, open it up. Open it up. What do you think? You like it? Oh, I love it. All right. I thought about you when I bought it. It's their joy to see you receive it. Now, what would you feel like if your wife said, well, I didn't really want to get this for you. I had some other things that I'd rather buy for me. (laughs) But it's Christmas. It's my duty here. I'd probably take it back and give her the money. If you have given unto the Lord grudgingly, you've already lost your reward. If as you came in the church tonight and you put some money in the agape boxes and you thought, oh man, I could use this this week. Get a new outfit. New CD player over at the stores on sale, but... Well, I feel guilty, so I might as well give my offering to the Lord. See one of the pastors afterwards. We'll refund you. God doesn't need it. God isn't broke. God's program can go on without it. Now, I know that's the opposite from what other institutions would tell you. Dig deep. Give big. God loves to see green, man. Hey, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's not broke. And I hate the idea when I hear, God's program's dependent on your check. No, it's not. I'm depending on God for my livelihood. It's true, God's people ought to support the work of the Lord, and they ought to give generously. In fact, when you give generously, it will come back to you in a generous measure. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows generously will reap generously. It's a law of the Spirit. It is. Give and it shall be given to you. Press down, running over, men will give into your bosom. I found that to be true. I can't afford to give. I can't afford not to. 
And I've watched God bless. And oftentimes when I see people in great straits financially, a lot of times people around here in the council will say, do you give to God's work? Well, no. Well, given it will be given to you. Now, be careful. The motivation to give is not to get. And oftentimes I hear on certain television programs and radio programs, put in your seed faith money and then... You know, you give it to us and that's why you do it. So God will give more back to you. No, you don't. You give it as unto Him. Love for Him. Hilariously, God loves a cheerful giver. It's His. All of it's His anyway. But God will give it back to you. you can, God will not be your debtor. You can never outgive Him. I've found that to be true in my own personal life. I've watched God bless me in so many ways. Spiritually, in incredible ways, and even in the physical realm. And sometimes I just go, Lord, this is too much. This is too wild. But he does it. But God says, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. There's an offering, by the way, that Moses took for the tabernacle. I think it's Exodus 25. God says, when you take my offering, make sure that you take it only from those who have a willing heart. Isn't that interesting? Even in the Old Testament, God said, take the offering of only people who want to do it. The offering was so big, Moses had to tell them to stop. Can you imagine if somebody would get on the radio and say, please, you've given too much to our ministry. Stop it. That would be great. But you know what, folks? If Christians did give even the bare minimum to their church and to Christian ministries who are promoting the gospel, they would never once have to go on the air and ask for it. They really wouldn't. So it's one hand to say, oh, you're always begging for money. But God's people, if they'd support God's work, there'd never be lack for one missionary on this planet, ever. We've been blessed in an abundant way. And you ought to do it before your heart. Some people, they think, well, I can't give 10%. Okay, hey, that's between you and God. It's not my business. I never look at who gives what in this church. I never once look at the books. It's not my business. We have bookkeepers that do it. That's fine. They have to do it. I don't need to see it. It's between you and God, not between me and you. But some of you should give more than 10% because God has blessed you very much. And I think of a Letourneau, who, the guy who made these big, huge, earth-moving equipment uh, tractors years ago. He gave... 90% of his income to God's work. He kept 10% for himself. And he was still very well off. The guy who started the Hershey Chocolate Company would give generously to the Lord. God blessed him. Again, it's not a means to get. It's just, uh, I could cite several of them actually, but let's go on. Let's not wear the text out. I just want to make one disclaimer, however. If you are not a believer, we're not asking you to give. You don't, if you're a non-believer, don't give to radio programs. Don't give to God's work. First of all, you won't be blessed because of it. But if you're God's child, don't rob God of what is His already. Well, what is God's? You just go before the Lord on your own. As you purpose in your own heart, you give it to the Lord. By the way, there's something attached to this. God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, 
And prove me now in this, says the Lord, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing, there will be not room enough to receive it or contain it. The only time in the scripture God says, test me, is in tithes and offering. It's the only one time he says to test him. He says, try it. Do it. See if I won't bless, just blow your mind with blessing. I will rebuke the devourer, which contextually seems to mean the locust plagues that would devour the land as judgment, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for your field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said... It is vain to serve God. What profit is it in that we have kept his ordinance and we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. Yes, those who tempt God go free. Can you imagine? What do I get out of serving God? It's vain. It's fruitless. Walking around mourning. Well, actually, in their case, it was vain because their heart wasn't in it. Whenever your heart's not in it, it's always a drag. It's always a drag. You do lack the joy. You walk around mourning. And when I used to go to church as a kid, it was like, oh, no, it's Sunday. Oh, I hate this. Oh, I'm going to have to sit through that thing and be bored. And then I hated it. My heart wasn't in it. When the Lord touched my life in 1973, He gave me an appetite for His Word, for God's people and fellowship. You couldn't keep me away from church. Man, I wanted to come every opportunity I had. I wanted to be fed. I wanted to be filled. I wanted to grow. It's a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit. But these people were saying, what profit is it that we have kept His ordinances? You know, I'll be real honest with you. What I say may sound a little bit strong, but I do believe it. For some people... It would be better if they just stay home and play golf on Sunday or take a drive because they come and, you know, one person said that a lot of people come to church to eye the clothes or to close the eyes. It's a good time to take a nap or it's a good time to check what everybody's wearing or what new cute girl is there that is a, a dateable Christian or for the wrong motivation. Their heart's not in it. Yet they themselves say, It's just vain to serve God. The Lord is looking for people who worship Him in spirit and truth. No longer is Jerusalem the place to worship. I've been there. There's every conceivable sect of Christianity in Jerusalem. Not a lot of joy in those places, but they're there. But Jesus said, Neither in Jerusalem nor in Mount Gerizim will people worship, but they'll worship this Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking or earnestly searching for people to worship Him in spirit and in truth, from their hearts, true worship. Something that rises volitionally from their heart. God's looking for those. Verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke one to another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and meditate on His name. That's been one of my favorite texts. I love that. 
No doubt it was spoken to the godly remnant of those 42,000 that had come back who thought about the Lord, who spoke often about the goodness of God. It was from their hearts. When they got together, they really did fellowship. They really did talk about spiritual things. And God delighted in it. It was as if He stopped the choruses of heaven. He said, shh, quiet angels. Somebody's talking about me. I want to listen. All right. Let's write that down in my book of remembrances. No doubt it's a metaphor. Perhaps it is a literal book of remembrance. I don't know. But God keeps good books. He's got a computer brain. He can remember it all. And He records every word that you speak in His name, every deed you do for Him. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day I will make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between righteousness and wickedness, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that they will leave them neither root nor branch, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat. (laughs) So if you're worried about your weight, hey, don't worry about it. The Bible says they will delight themselves in fatness, fatness. (laughs) Scriptural. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. The first part of chapter 4 seems to anticipate that future time of judgment that we ill-affectionately call the Great Tribulation period. We know that in one of the judgments, chapter 6, as the horses go out, one-fourth of the earth is destroyed during that time of judgment. But... To you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in His wings. Speaking of the Messiah. Verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Now God is telling them to remember the law of Moses because at this point God is turning off the broadcast network. For 400 years He goes off the air. There are no prophets. There's no revelation until the angel Gabriel approaches Zechariah in the temple. John the Baptist is born. John the Baptist is the messenger that heralds the Messiah. And Jesus is the messenger of the covenant, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. Until that time, for 400 years, remember the law of Moses. They're still in the old economy. With the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This is exactly what the angel told Zacharias about his son, John the Baptist, and what he would do. He will come, he said, in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And he will turn the Hearts of the father to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. The angel quotes that. Coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
When John the Baptist goes down to the Jordan River, preaches those heavy sermons, people are curious, who is this guy? Is this the Messiah that Malachi spoke about? Or is this Elijah that Malachi spoke about? So they ask him, are you the Messiah? Nope. Are you that prophet? No. Are you Elijah? He said, no. Now Gabriel said he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Quotes this verse. John says, I am not Elijah. And he really wasn't Elijah. He was John the Baptist. Later on in the ninth chapter, I believe, the 11th chapter, pardon me, of the Gospel of Matthew, Peter, James, and John get taken up to a high mountain. Who appears with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. The lawgiver and the greatest prophet. When they come down from the mountain, they start asking Jesus about Elijah. Hey, the scripture says Elijah is going to come. Is that right? That's right. Elijah is going to come. Yet, Jesus said, if you can receive it, Elijah has already come. And they have done to him whatever they will. And the text said it was referring to John the Baptist. Now again, after that, Jesus says, but Elijah will come. Now, it sounds a bit confusing. Today, the Jews at Passover leave the door open and one chair open for Elijah the prophet. They expect him to come because of this scripture. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, as Gabriel said, fulfilling this prophecy to turn the hearts of the children and father, so forth. He says he's not Elijah. Jesus says, if you can receive it, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This was Elijah. Yet, Elijah will come. Again, we see, as so often in the Old Testament, a dual fulfillment of prophecy. In a sense, he was Elijah as the forerunner of the messenger of the covenant. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. However, in the future, before Jesus comes the second time, Elijah will come according to Jesus Christ. Elijah will yet come. I believe we see him plainly in Revelation chapter 11 as one of the two witnesses. Whoever the other witness is, we're not certain, but I'm almost positive, I'm certain that one of them is Elijah because of the signs that he does are exact duplicates of Elijah in the Old Testament. He comes in as a herald to the Jewish nation, as a witness to the world. And CNN will witness their death and their resurrection. Because it says all of the world will wonder as they see these two die in Jerusalem and people will give gifts at their death and taunt them because of their righteousness. But Elijah will yet come in the future. He will turn the hearts of the Father to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The last word of the Old Testament is what? Curse. It's how it began, right? Because of man's sin, the fall, that inherited disease because of Adam brought a curse. At this point, you can see how the Messiah is greatly anticipated. Judgment is predicted, yet in the midst of judgment, in the midst of darkness, the Son of Righteousness is predicted who would come with healing in His wings. A messenger is predicted to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I smite the earth with a curse. It would be good to turn to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, to see how 
the book ends. The answers are always in the back of the book. I learned that in school. And I want you to notice the last chapter, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. Verse 14, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city, but outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murderers, idolaters, And whoever loves and practices a lie, I, Jesus, have sent my messenger or angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root, the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. The prediction or the anticipation in the Old Testament, the realization of it in the New Testament. Thus, the Old Testament ends. By the way, as a point of trivia, perhaps significant. Balaam, who was from Persia, from the east, around Iran, Iraq, predicted that a star will rise out of Jacob. Could it be his prophecy that thousands of years later sparked the Magi, who were also from the same region as Balaam, to look for his star as they saw it in the sky and came to Bethlehem? It wasn't a star in the east. They were in the east. It was a star in the west. Star shall arise out of Jacob, and that star is personified in the prophecy of Balaam. And they followed it. They followed it, no doubt, because of the prophecies of Daniel, I believe. That's another story we've discussed in the past. But they came. Anyway, the Old Testament closes. Okay, what happens? Real briefly, for 400 years. At this point... Israel changes hands under many monarchs, many rulers, many kingdoms. The Persian Empire is starting to go down. Remember, Babylon was high. It sunk. The Medo-Persian Empire arose. It's now sinking. Alexander the Great, that great Macedonian prince, begins an intensive campaign to take over the world at 20 years old. He succeeds. With rapidity, he goes throughout Turkey and Asia Minor, Persia, the Near East, Babylon. 31 years old, he weeps in Babylon because there's no more kingdoms to conquer. He dies at almost 32 years of age in a drunken stupor with pneumonia outside of the city of Babylon. When he dies, his four generals take over. They divide up the kingdom of Macedonia, or the world, basically, into four parts. The two parts that concern the Jews are the kingdom of Egypt under the Ptolemies, the kingdom of Syria under the Seleucids. At first, things were great because the Ptolemies in Egypt conquered Israel, but they were more interested in literary development, getting people to read and the fine arts and learning the language of uh, the Greco-Macedonian Empire. So they had no problems with them until Ptolemy III sat upon the throne of Egypt, persecuted the Jews, which brought a rivalry between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire, Egypt and Syria. Who's right in the middle? The Jews. Antiochus IV, coming against Egypt, is defeated, gets so angry that he goes up to Jerusalem, kills 40,000 Jews, takes at least 40 to 80,000 captive, forbids the Sabbath to go on. On December 25th, he puts a swine in the temple of Jerusalem, 
cuts it open and sacrifices it. It was predicted by Daniel as the abomination that causes desolation, anticipatory of another one that will come in the tribulation period. He is called, or calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes, the illustrious God made manifest. The Jews called him Antiochus Epimenides, the madman, or the beast, because of his persecution. They begin or they continue their rage throughout Israel until his troops go down to a little village in Modin, down in southern Judah. The Syrian governor commands that a sacrifice be made, a pagan offering be made to the gods, to Zeus, to Jupiter, and that people denounce Judaism. One of the Jewish men was so scared he steps forward to ignite the sacrifice. One of the elder men named Mattathias became so angry at this. He was a Hasmonean. Took out a sword and killed the Jew who was a traitor and the governor on his horse and began a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. Lasts for three years. They raid the Syrian camps by night for three years until three years later, on December 25th, they rededicate the temple. This time, his son, Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, he was nicknamed. As the legend says, as history tells us, and I say it's legend because it's not proven except by that account, There was one cruise of oil to last one day in the burning of the candelabra in the temple in Jerusalem. Miraculously, it lasted eight days. They began the festival of lights, which we know as Hanukkah, lighting the Hanukkah, the festival of lights. The Jews reclaim their land back to them again. They're free (laughs) until the Romans come. And the Romans come under Pompey, put in a guy named John Hyrcanus II who traced his lineage back to the Hasmonean dynasty, the Maccabees. He delivers Jerusalem over to the Romans and now they're subjugated under the Roman Empire once again. Then a real jerk appears on the scene. Herod is his name. Herod the Great who is an Idumean from across the Jordan River. The Jews hate him. He's put there as a puppet king, a vassal king by the Roman government, makes the Jews pay tribute to the Roman government, and they're oppressed once again. Heavy taxation. Crucifixion is now enacted as a form of punishment for any Jewish traitor. And the people once again are anticipating the Messiah. But let's make matters worse. The Romans under Herod the Great come in and put an end to the Jews' right to govern themselves and they take away the right of the Jewish high court to enact capital punishment. That is why when Jesus comes on the scene, they have to go to Pilate to get the sanction to crucify Jesus. Remember, they had no right at that point. Before that point, they had the right when it was a religious matter. But they didn't have that right. Now, about just a a few years before Jesus came on the scene in his three-and-a-half-year ministry under Herod the Great, the Romans took away the right of capital punishment. At that point, the Jews said, God has failed us. He's not kept his covenant. 
because there was a prophecy back in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until the lawgiver will come or Messiah will come. The scepter, the the right of rulership, self-rulership, governance, will not depart from Judah. When that right of governance in the land of Israel, as they were still occupying it in Jerusalem, was taken away from them, though they occupied it, though they had a temple, the priests put on sackcloth and ashes, paraded around the city of Jerusalem, saying, the scepter has departed, the Messiah has not come. But about 40 miles north of Jerusalem, a man was laying down his carpenter tools in a shop, ready to come into Capernaum and eventually into Jerusalem as the Messiah, around the same time. The Messiah was coming. The scepter had departed, but Shiloh, or the lawgiver, as the prophet said, was coming. Now, at the time Jesus comes on the scene, you can see what has elapsed in these 400 silent years where God is in broadcasting through the prophets. There's a tremendous oppression and an anticipation that the Messiah will deliver us. And a group called the Zealots arose. And the group called the Pharisees and the Sadducees anticipating the Messiah. So you can see when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, their hearts jumped. They leaped. The world was ripe. It was ripe not only in the Jewish anticipation for the Messiah, but also because Alexander the Great took over the world at one time, he forced Greek to be spoken as a universal language, which meant the New Testament was written in Greek. Everybody could understand it in Koine Greek, common, everyday, marketplace Greek, which would allow a transcultural giving out of the gospel. Third, the Romans constructed massive road systems throughout the known world so that you could get from one place to another quite easily, which allowed for the quick spread of the gospel with the Greek language and the Romans road, Roman roads throughout the Roman Empire. Hence, the Holy Spirit came upon the early church and they went to all the world and preached the gospel even to the center of the empire, Rome itself. And so you now know what the scripture means. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his own son, born of a woman, born under the law. It was the fullness of time. It was the right time. Anyway, that's the background for next time we jump into the New Testament. For next time we jump into the New Testament.